A reading from Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers and sisters, you do not need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. When they say there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and there will be no escape. But you, beloved, are not in darkness for that day to surprise you like a thief for you are all children of light and children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not fall asleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who are drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober and put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has destined us not for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live with him. This is the word of the Lord. Hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to John. When the advocate comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth who comes from the Father, he will testify on my behalf. You are also to testify because you have been with me from the beginning. But I have said these things to you so that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told you about them. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me. Yet none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your hearts. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will prove the world wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. About sin, because they do not believe in me. About righteousness, because I am going to the Father, and you will see me no longer. About judgment, because the ruler of this world has been condemned. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own, but he will speak, but will speak whatever he hears. He, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me because he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. For this reason, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. This is the gospel of the Lord. Let's pray. Spirit of God, our creator, our comforter, O brooding dove, O howling wind, O breath of the life of God, breathe in us this morning, we ask, and speak to us now, we pray. Help us to hear your voice through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Happy Pentecost. And not so happy text 
it seems. Uh, this text that we just read from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. How many of you winced at least once during the reading of the passage? There are some disturbing images and there's some troubling language here. It's probably helpful to just acknowledge that that is the case. There's this prophecy of the Lord bringing sudden destruction upon unsuspecting people who won't be able to escape once it's all started. It's a disturbing image. There's the day of the Lord portrayed as a thief coming at night to surprise people who are fast asleep and maybe even a little drunk. That's disturbing. That's troubling imagery. And then there's this warrior imagery where faithful living looks like putting on battle gear to prepare for a fight. What is, what is that about? What is all this stuff about and why is it in the Bible? I think that's a really important question to ask because it seems that some people, many people in fact, think that the point of these words is to scare people. That the point of the words is actually scare people into believing in Jesus. How many of you have ever seen the 1972 movie, A Thief in the Night? Okay, show of hands. Uh, how many of you have ever, maybe when you were a teenager, gone to like a judgment house or one of those hell house things that's sponsored by your church or your friend's church where you go in and you go through the really overheated room with people screaming and then you're brought into the air-conditioned room with people dressed in white robes and stuff and they're like, which one's better? Sign on the dotted line. It's like stuff... True confessions, I've never experienced any of this stuff. I grew up outside of the church for better and worse, and this is one of those for better ones. Um, you know, where I, I never read any of those novels or watched any of those movies. I just, I was, you know, never, like, involved in any of that stuff. Um, but as, so, anyway, many of you have, and I'm, and I'm always amazed at how many people have been. I've, I was talking with my wife this week about her own experiences of that, some of our church leaders this week about their experiences of that, and it's just, you know, of all the, re, of all the things that I missed out on by not being raised in the community of the church, you know, the not being exposed to traumatizing and manipulative evangelism programs just isn't one of them. It's, that's church gone wrong, um, and if you grew up with any of that, I'm sorry, and I hope our exploration of 1 Thessalonians 5 today just might um, offer help and healing and even some redirection in how we live with this particular piece of the scriptures. Because the Apostle Paul's point in this passage is not to be scary. That's not at all what he's trying to do. He's not trying to scare anyone with this text. He's writing this to encourage people. In fact, he even tells you that in the last verse of this passage. Right? That's why he's writing this. It's the same thing he said at the last verse of the last passage. Encourage one another with these words. It's about encouragement. That's what Paul's doing. He's commending the faith of the Thessalonians, and he's urging them onward in faith and love and hope, not trying to scare the literal hell out of them so that they would be scared straight into believing in Jesus. Or that those who have weak or little or no faith in Christ might be in some way disturbed toward faith. It's about encouragement. So why in the world would people living in this Greco-Roman city of Thessalonica in the first century find these words encouraging? Well, one reason is that the message Paul is coming to tell them is that this long-awaited day of the Lord is still coming. And for persecuted people who long for rescue and vindication and restoration of their lives, that is good news. And it's also good news for Pentecost people. 
For people who have been celebrating this day of the Lord that has already come. And yet at the same time have been experiencing suffering and rejection that may have caused them to think that this great day of the Lord that supposedly had come at Pentecost maybe it just isn't all it's cracked up to be. There's this Old Testament expectation of the day of the Lord. If you read through the scriptures, this is a major theme that unfolds. And the prophetic view, if you read through the Old Testament text, this view of what's coming, the day of the Lord is this future moment when God would visit his people, deliver them from their enemies, the ones who are beating, beating up on them. He would renew their hearts and restore them, make a new covenant with them. That he would pour out his spirit on all of God's people, not just particular prophets or priests or kings who had very specific and important jobs, but all of God's people to do the full work of God's people. He would pour out his spirit on all of them. And on that day, God would also establish the worldwide kingdom of peace under the rule of God's anointed one, the Messiah. These are the expectations that are attached to this concept of the day of the Lord. And when Pentecost happened, on that original day of Pentecost, when the Spirit of God descended on God's people in this unprecedented and irreversible way, the Apostle Peter actually stood up and declared that what was happening right then was that day. He starts quoting the prophets, like the prophet Joel. On that day, the Spirit will be poured out on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, even the male and female slaves of the people shall be prophets. And Peter says, that day, that long-awaited day, is today, on Pentecost. And the story that unfolds from that day forward is this remarkable one in which God sends his people out into the world in the presence and the power of his Spirit and all of a sudden what happens is people of all sorts of backgrounds and language groups and cultures and religious backgrounds and different social standings, people of all sorts and from all places start coming alive to God and start joining together in one family and begin to participate with God in God's mission of blessing all the peoples of the earth. That story begins to unfold from Pentecost forward there's something missing. The whole divine victory thing that was attached to that day of the Lord isn't so apparent because Rome is still there and they're bigger and badder than ever. And Christians throughout the Roman Empire began to be rejected by the Jewish communities from which they were originally springing up. And the Jewish communities enjoyed a protected status as a protected minority that was recognized by the Roman Empire. And so they were allowed to just be Jewish and not have to participate in some of the other things that regular Romans had to participate in. And so as long as the, the, these new groups of Jesus followers were included in that Jewish community, they were protected too. But as soon as the Jewish people started to say, yeah, you're not us, and they were pushed out, now they were unprotected and were vulnerable. And they no longer enjoyed the protected status in the empire, and so persecution began. Some of them were marginalized socially, some of them were put into prison, some of them were even put to death. Because the Roman authorities began to view the Christian communities as threats to the, quote, peace and security of Rome. Peace and security. 
It's a sort of political slogan of the empire. It's a hallmark of what's called the Pax Romana, the Roman peace. Roman citizens saw Rome as the light in the midst of a dark world. And the emperor as the bringer of peace to the empire, a peace that all the citizens of Rome enjoyed. And so the emperor was this one for establishing and maintaining this, quote, peace and security within the realm. And so in verse 3, when Paul says, when they say there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them. There will be no escape. He's not talking about your friends and neighbors. Like, has nothing to do with what he's talking about. He's talking about Rome. He's talking about the Roman Empire that had their own particular commitment to a kind of peace and security. And that vision of peace and security was leading them to crush Christians because they were seen as a threat to the peace and security. He's talking about the Roman Empire that is actively bullying the readers of the letter. And so rather than being a scare tactic to try to like startle the readers into awakening to some complacency or something that they've maybe been ignoring, he's writing this to the people where he's saying, take heart and be encouraged. Your bully doesn't win in the end. The one beating you up mightily doesn't win in the end and your suffering is not in vain. Your experience of suffering doesn't override what God is doing in the world. He hasn't forgotten you. He hasn't abandoned you. He hasn't let up on his mission or his commitment to see it through. He's going to do with Rome just as he did with Babylon way back when. And it's around Babylon that much of this day of the Lord prophecy begins to come among the people of Israel. And what Paul is saying is like, no, God hasn't given up on you. What you see right now of this day of the Lord, what's happened from Pentecost forward, what you see right now, that's not all that it is. That's an important part of what it is. But it's not all of what it is. This God who in Jesus Christ has conquered all of his and your invisible enemies, sin and the power of evil in your life and in the world, he will come again to deliver you from all of your visible enemies enemies as well, namely the ones who are beating you up and putting you in prison and killing you and your friends today. That's what this is about. And Paul describes this moment of deliverance using apocalyptic language that admittedly we don't know what to do with very well. We are so out of touch with this way of thinking and speaking about the future that we need like a lot of help to read a passage like this in a way that remotely fits what Paul is trying to say here more than fitting what we are prepared to hear. So when we modern readers, we come to a biblical text like this one, or anyone really, it's almost instinctively for us to apply our familiar categories. And our familiar categories are usually the ones that if you walk into like Barnes and Noble and you look at the signs, they have labels up there. Fiction, nonfiction, poetry, right? Like we have some categories in mind of like different kinds of literature. And so we immediately go to those categories, and so you read a text like this, and you start using the boxes that are available to you, and you think, well, what is this? Oh, nonfiction, because Paul is describing things as they actually are. It's didactic nonfiction, because Paul's not making things up, and he's trying to teach us stuff. And so if he's doing that, but he's speaking about the future, then what Paul must be doing is something like journalism in advance, like like he's been allowed to observe the scene and now he's, co- he's been a reporter there and then he's coming back to us to tell us 
like a reporter would, what's going to unfold. And, if, and we just have this assumption that if Paul's telling the truth about the future, that that's how he's telling the truth about the future. But that's just not what apocalyptic literature is at all. It's not journalism in advance. The goal isn't to provide an advanced screening of what you're going to see with your own eyes or might capture on film when the day comes. The goal is to speak about the future in a theologically rich and symbolically powerful way that calls the reader or the hearer to reimagine the future differently and therefore live today differently. And that's exactly what Paul is doing here. And he weaves together these Roman slogans like peace and security and light and darkness. And these biblical images like the divine warrior figure from Isaiah 59 who wears the breastplate and the helmet of God's armor. And he does this in order to depict a vivid scene in which Jesus defeats Rome in an undeniable and visible way and leaves absolutely no doubt to whom the victory belongs and which Lord it is that establishes peace and security on earth. It's Jesus not Caesar. And there's a day coming when every eye shall behold and every tongue shall confess that reality. And he's included you in it on his side on that day. That's what Paul's telling them. Yet that day that is to come is not all that there is. The day has already come when God's spirit shall come upon all God's people, and all God's people shall be one in Christ, and this people shall be Christ's body on the earth, and God's witnesses and instruments of blessing to the nations. That day has come at Pentecost, and that day will come at the Lord's return. They're connected. There are two aspects of the one day of the Lord, the now and the not yet, and Paul says, you are children of that day. You are children of that day the now and the not yet. So live according to who you are. Live as children of the day that is now and not yet, which is to say, live according to the presence and power of God's spirit that is here among you now. And live according to the hope of that which is not yet, but will be when Christ returns. And then he gives this practical guidance about what it looks like, and he just focuses on these two things. Our attention and our alignment. And Paul says, so to speak, pay attention to God's presence and align your life with God's purposes. Keep awake, Paul says, and be sober. You know the way people do in the daytime. That's what he's saying. He's like, live daytime life, not nighttime life. Nighttime life is when people sleep or drink too much. But you are daytime people. You are day of the Lord people. So pay attention. Pay attention to the presence of God who envelops and enlivens you. The God who is here by his spirit now. The very breath of life that fills you and animates your frame. Will you wake up to this God? Pay attention. Pay attention to God. Pay attention to God's beloved. That's you. And that's the community of faith. And that's your neighbor. Will you pay attention to the one God loves. His loving gaze is upon you. Is that where your loving gaze is? His loving gaze is upon your neighbor. Is that where your 
loving gaze is. God sees you and he understands you and he attends to your story and he holds your life. Will you join God in exploring your soul and knowing yourself? Will you let his fatherly delight in you reorient you to yourself? Pay attention. Will you let God's fatherly delight in your neighbor reorient you as you conceptualize and relate to the other people in your life? Will you let both the anchor of God's promise and the movement of God's spirit reorient you as you experience the events of your day, from the people you cross paths with to what's happening in the world that you read about or hear about? Will you pay attention to the God who is there and at work? And will you talk to him? Will you rest in him? Will you awaken to the day of his presence rather than living in the night of his absence? Because you are children of the day. Even though that day is marked by the pain of all that is not yet. And even though that day so often looks more like the cross than like the peace and security that we crave. And as you awaken to God and live attentively to God's presence, Paul then asks, will you align your life more and more with his? In verses 8 through 10, Paul uses this image of the divine warrior rescuer figure from Isaiah to make this point that God has rescued his people in order to include his people in God's mission of restoring all things. And those people are clothed in faith and love and hope. Will you clothe yourselves in this way? In the Old Testament, the divine figure who wears God's armor comes to rescue God's people. In the New Testament, God's puts, God puts some of that armor on the people who are rescued as he enlists those rescued people in his mission of rescuing and blessing and serving the earth. It's the armor of faith and hope and love. It's not worldly armor you wear to prepare for a worldly war and the kinds of fights we get into. It's a different kind of armor. It's cross-shaped armor that's preparing us for an entirely different kind of war. It's the war against our own selfishness that leads us away from love. And it's the war against our own arrogance that keeps us from entrusting ourselves to God and one another. And it's the war against our own cynicism and despair that erode our hope. It's the war against the evil within each of us, which is not won by violence, is not won by hatred, but by the cross of Christ and the life-giving power of his spirit of love. And Paul says, clothe yourselves with faith, love, and hope that will draw you more and more into alignment with the character of God and the movement of his spirit in the earth because he has won the war over your soul and you are children of the day both now and forever. Author James Clear writes that every action you take is a vote for the type of person you wish to become. And I hear Paul saying in so many words, <laughs> make your votes count. You are children of the day, live according to who you are, not according to who you're not. So don't use your thoughts and your words and your actions to cast votes for some version of yourself that is less than the beautiful, delightful one God has made you to be. But instead, wake up and pay attention and get dressed with the clothing that fits the day of faith and love and hope because today is the day of the Lord. The Lord is here. His spirit is with us. Let's pray.
O Holy Spirit, as you renew the face of the earth, so renew us today in your presence as we gather to the table of our Lord. Breathe into us, O breath of God, the very life that proceeds from the Father and the Son so that we with you may be made alive together with Jesus Christ our Lord whom you raised from death and to whom you hold us so tightly that no power in heaven or on earth could possibly separate us from his love. Awaken us now and enliven us so that we may live with you both now and forever. Amen.